Um, I, to be sure, I always, always uh, consider it a privilege and an honor to stand in the podium. It's not done lightly. <clears throat> so it's a privilege. I, I'm, I'm going to try my hardest to stick to my notes today so that I don't get in any trouble. Um, but I, I don't want to miss the moment of Father's Day uh, because there's, there's a, a poem that comes to mind. One of the things about celebrating things like Mother's Day, Father's Day, is that there's this ideal that we realize that um, maybe, maybe was not our experience or, or not what we feel like any of us can really live up to, and yet the ideal is important. So I don't ever want us to, any of us to, to understand uh, God any differently than the fact that he holds the ideal out before us and yet he walks with us wherever we are. So whether we're going to talk about fathers or family, which is the message today, um, I would invite you to keep that in mind. And if you're feeling in any way, shape, or form a sense of condemnation, recognize immediately that that is the enemy trying to sow, sow seeds of doubt, destruction in your heart and in your mind at that moment and from that moment forward, and react accordingly. But in light of Father's Day, I want to read a poem to you that I heard many, many years ago, uh, written by, I believe it's D.R. Grossberg, um, and it, it just conveys something so powerful to me, and I thought I, I, would, I would read it to you um, this morning on behalf of Father's Day, and then we get into the message, so it shouldn't take no more than two hours. Um, <clears throat> the, so what I would invite you to do... I would invite it so that you can kind of enter into to the, to the poem. I would invite you to close your eyes. So some of you would give you more of an opportunity to picture the scenario that's painted in this, in this poetic uh, um, expression. For the others of you, it's an, it's an advance on your nap that you're going to get anyway. So um, in the next uh, 45 minutes. So let's go there. This is, this is a poem called The Race. Quit. Give up. You're beaten, they shout and plead. There's just too much against you. Now, this time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene, for just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young men, young boys... Oh, I remember it well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each, through to, each thought to win that race or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son, and each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they went, young hearts and hopes of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, his dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, oh, my dad will be so proud. And as he speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace amid the laughter of the crowd he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face. That to the boy so clearly said, get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall, so anxious to restore himself, to catch up, and to win. 
His mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face, that steady look that said again, get up and win this race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm going to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceedingly, everything he had, he regained eight or 10, but trying so hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat, he lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away, so far behind, so error-prone, closer all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win that race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is not more than this, to rise each time you fall. And so he rose to win one more, once more, and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever seen, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen, stumbling. Three times he'd rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed first place. Head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, not proud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to that crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And when things, things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit. Give up defeat, they still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win that race. Amen. Okay, could I have the prayer team up here now, please? <laughs> that is such a powerful uh, picture of what a dad's love is all about and what our father's love is all about. And I can't, you can't see the poem, uh, but the letters, the important letters are capitalized because if that wasn't our own dad's experience with our own dads, that certainly is the picture of what our father in heaven is all about. So I do want to, want to remind you that to, you know, today is Father's Day, and we know that because there's root beer outside. Um, <laughs> Uh, now, some of us are tempted to proclaim this, just like Mother's Day is really an invention uh, of, of the Hallmark greeting card company or whoever to get us to commercialize the event. You know, in fact, that's not true. Mother's Day was invented in 1914, and unfortunately, it got around to Father's Day like in 1958, but it's still here. Um, <clears throat> the, the reality is, 
in our cynicism about commercialization, let's not miss what this really is. And it really calls us back uh, to the scripture, which uh, in Ephesians 6 says this, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. So let's always contextualize Father's Day and Mother's Day in that light. But I want to talk about the, the, what God... Um, when Pastor Brian asked, would I want to speak today, I, I wasn't sure. And then I was like thinking, I really want, there's been some things I've learned about family. And I want to come back and I want to take that opportunity, this opportunity to talk about family. And again, there's an ideal. And then, and then there's what, what we often deal with. And then re- the reality is God calls us to remember some key things. That we are family. Now, I was tempted to go to 1978. We are family, right? But I sing horribly, and you don't want to hear me do that. So, um, one of the realities about family is that it is it is in peril. It is under attack uh, in a variety of ways. The enemy of God, Satan, attacks every aspect of his plan for humanity every aspect of his plan for humanity. In fact, it is, it is in the very Garden of Eden that three of the four key building blocks of civilization appear. Remember, as soon as God's plan in the form of man and woman began to take form in the garden, Genesis 2, the serpent, Satan, steps in immediately and starts to wreak havoc, right? So from the very beginning, we have God's plan in action, and then we have the serpent come in, or, or Satan, uh, as, as we understand. I mean, I, I don't know, there's some, a lot of things I don't understand about that particular picture. Like, I'm sorry, but as soon as one of the critters starts to talk to me, I immediately would have been like, what's up with that? <laughs> you know, I might have checked in with the boss at that point. Hey, is he allowed to talk? <clears throat> but nope. So it goes on. We know the story, and I'm not really going to get into all of that. But there are three fundamental elements of God's plan that, that, that appear in the, in the garden. One of those is individual agency. And by agency, I'm, I'm using the, the sociological or philosophical definition, which is the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. The second is marriage. The third is family. And the fourth is the church, which shows up later as the plan of ultimate redemption um, and, and really begins with the establishment of the nation of Israel, the priesthood, and so on. But we'll get to that a bit later. From communion to community, each pillar of God's authority is being ridiculed and rejected. Now, the first government, other than God's government, is self-government. Self-government. This is one of those things, like, if, you, if you're watching the news at all today, this is what we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with the ability to govern ourselves. And that is age-old. It goes back to that very garden. Despite every effort to relieve individuals of their own responsibility, or our every effort to relieve individuals of, of their own responsibility, God calls us all to practice self-government in order to overcome our own fleshly nature which is the demand for self. The number one destroyer of marriage, family, community, unity, even geopolitical stability is self and focusing on too too much on self. That's why one of the most fundamental rules of relationship is the golden rule, which comes to us from Scripture, right? Do unto others as you would have have them do to you. Matthew 7, Luke 6. Now, I've been reading a lot about cultural appropriation lately. Like, is it cultural appropriation by non-Christians to treat each other like, you know, like to use the golden rule? 
never mind. That's just, that was just where my head goes. But we have to remember that these are Jesus' rules. You know the whole thing about, about be, you know, be thoughtful of the next person is something Jesus himself calls us to. Today, wherever you turn, Satan is not just attacking individuals. He's not just attacking marriages. He's not just attacking families themselves, but he's attacking the very institutions that this represents. Why do we have these things? Why bother? Why should we? These things are old and antiquated. So on the one hand, Satan really whispers into our ears, like we heard in the poem, and, and, and it whispers into our ears that we should, should um, get what we deserve. We should have all that we want. We should be able to feed everything that we want, all of our desires, all of our thoughts. We should be able to have all of that. And then on the other, on the other hand, he, he tempts us to covet what that is someone else's. And so we get pushed and pulled by Satan's efforts and he also tries to convince us then that we're, we're powerless. We can't overcome. We're incapable of winning. In doing that, he looks to isolate us, to, to separate us out, right? Which is, which is a classic tactic of any enemy anywhere is to divide and conquer, to separate out the weakest and take them out. Right? The scripture says that he, say, the enemy uh, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Right? That's why the whole parable of the hundred sheep, where 99 are together and one gets off, Jesus says, hold tight. And he goes for the one because he knows that is where the, where the danger is going to be. Because that's what the enemy will do, is segment and separate. And that, I think, is one of the things that, that, that even as we watch celebrity suicides grip our nation, we have to realize that the very heart of this, one of the very fundamental aspects, is that we're made for community. And when we feel overwhelmed isolation, when we feel all alone, is when we have the, the, the greatest um, open door for the enemy to wreak havoc in our own lives and to make us feel that we can't overcome anything. While there are moments of isolation... There is a greater picture of community and family that God wants for us. Family is the basic component of any community, the basic building block of our society. Family is providential. Let me take you back to the garden. In Genesis 2, we see that God creates Adam, places him in the garden, gives him the key instruction. By that, basically one instruction. I mean, really, one instruction. He only had one job. Have you heard, have you seen, there's some memes. I have the, Austin, do you have a couple of memes? He only, he only had one job, and there were some, some pictures that reminded me of that. Wait, do you see the stairs are going down, and the rail is going up? Yeah, okay. I mean, I mean Adam had one job to do. And, of course, Eve gets in on that. And you know the story. The, 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 the enemy comes in. And, but, he, but there's this picture in between when the garden is designed. He's getting those instructions. God brings all the animals to Adam. Remember, Adam is by himself, right? God brings all, those, all the animals to him, and he names them all. And some of the names, I'm, I, I just think, really, Adam, where'd you come up with that one? You know, like the, like the term yak. Like... Well, okay, I'm running out. Okay, I'll just throw stuff out there. You know, so there's just every now and then there's those names that pop up, and I think, okay, well, well done, Adam. That that was thoughtful, and then that one wasn't. 
Um, but you know, in that story, uh, God is, brings all the animals two by two, right? And, he, and then you hear all this, this is good, this is good. And then God makes a declaration for Adam and says, this, for man to be by himself, is not good. And so he fixes that, right? Because it's not good. It's not good for guys to be by themselves, right? Um, not as a rule. Uh, so he has to go get, get, he has to pull out of Adam. He basically creates what was one. He makes two and makes them complementary. And that in, therein is the very first family, one male, one female, the very first human family. Uh, it could be said that God, that God himself is a family. The first non-human family is God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Even, even, even the Godhead is a family of sorts. <clears throat> so in the, in the earthly picture, we have the human family. First family, one man, one woman, God's creation, same instance, one unit, but two people. Their natures, their personalities, and their um, equipment are complementary, right? One of the most fundamental principles of hermeneutics, uh, the principle, which, by the way, is the principle of interpreting Scripture, is the first mention. And so while the word family is first used in Genesis 5, the core structure, the first time we see the family is, in this instance, in the garden, in Genesis 2, with the union of Adam and Eve. Family and marriage originated with God, and thus is a provision of God, making it providential, as we learn throughout Scripture, the nature of family is nurture. And I like this. Um, uh, in fact, in uh, Paul's writing, he gets very, very, very uh, straight with folks. He says, anyone who does not provide for their family, especially those of their own household, has denied the faith as an worse than an unbeliever. It's like the First Timothy 5.8. So family is providential. It was created by God. It's God's idea. Family is provision. Family is how God provisions, not just for today, but for the future. The term procreation conveys the very essence of Genesis 1.28, which says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So not only do families forge the future, but in his providence, God gives everyone a place of belonging, a place to be nurtured, and then later, a place to nurture. Because these are part and parcel of our, of, the, our, of our inner nature that God has designed us. One of the distinctly human realities, when compared to animals, is that human babies are wholly dependent at birth. Thank God they are cute. <laughs> I think that that's his design. He makes them really cute, so we want to bring them home. <laughs> because basically all, they're, all they are are, are I'm, I'm sorry, pooping machines and uh, whining, crying little things. It's, thank, thank God that they're so cute when they first arrive because we might be tempted to do something else with them. That was my opinion, not necessarily that of the staff or management of Vineyard Christian Church. So. <laughs> so animals, by contrast, are usually able to be independent. I don't know if you've seen some of these, some of these things, like you have this giraffe born, like with all these gangly, like legs are everywhere, and next thing you know, the thing stands and kind of gallops off. Like it's, a, it's amazing, and yet our offspring just kind of lie there like in lumps on the floor. Isn't it cute? Go ahead. No, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're, they lie there, and then they just get bigger, and then they're like 18, and then they go to college, right? So they just consistently consume more and more 
and more. <laughs> but that's the difference. The human child needs a place, needs a family to develop physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. In family, we are better able to survive. In fact, it's not just survive, but thrive. So I, I went back in my, in my history, because, you know, I'm, I'm like 100 years old. So um, there, there's an old playground jingle that goes like this. I'm going to pick on, I'm glad Aaron's here. That's important. Thank you, Aaron. Um, there's an old playground jingle. I'm going to use Brian and Michelle for this. So if you pick up on it, join in, okay? Brian and Michelle sitting in a tree, okay? First comes, then comes... Then comes Aaron. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone under, under 25 is going like, where did that come from? Like, like come on, I'm going to Shazam that. Can you do that again? I don't know who wrote that. So this is not just an old familiar playground jingle. It's actually uh, a proven sociological it's called the sequence of success. And according to a longitudinal study, which was just completed, it was begun in 1997 and published in 2017, uh, Wendy Wang and uh, W. Bradford Wilcox of the Institute for Family Studies find that millennials, so that's the group that they were studying, millennials, are much more likely to flourish financially if they follow the success sequence which is getting at least a high school degree, working full-time, and marrying before having any children in that order. All right, so parents, grandparents, if you ever get pushback on this, you have, like, scientific research and the Bible, right? Because those are both important. One of those is more important than the other. You figure it out, all right? So of those surveyed in, in this survey who had children, more than half, 55%, of the 28 to 34-year-old millennial parents in the survey had their first child before marriage. And of these, in this time frame, 72% had stayed above, above the poverty level. However, of the remaining who married first, an astounding 95% had avoided poverty. Right? Even millennials from low-income families are more likely to flourish if they married before having children. 71% who married uh, before having children made it into the middle or high, higher end of income distribution by the time they were at the age 28 to 34. By comparison, only 41% of millennials from lower-income families who had children first before marrying made it into the middle or higher end of the distribution. So science comes alongside, this socio sociological study comes along and says, this is how it should be. This is where success happens. Now I know that there are scenarios and factors that are foisted upon us that are challenging to deal with, but when the decision is within us to do, when the decision is, is things that we can make, we need to follow God's order and, and the sequences that he knows are best for us. Family is not only provision for us today, but it's protection for our future. And this highlights the fact that a continued assault on the family will only have a destabilizing effect on our social structure. 
And I don't mean just ours in the U.S. I mean wherever this is happening. This is happening all over. Uh, this this, this uh, oppression and, 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 and the, uh, the attempt to tear apart the family, wherever it is, is really inspired by the, the devil. And sometimes it's codified in policy. And we need to be very careful to uh, not allow that to happen, not to let the seeds of, of, the, of that even sown into our own hearts. Family is protection. God the, think about this. God the Father place Jesus into a blended family. Right? So I'm not talking about like, okay, it's all got to be, all family all has to be a certain way. But once we have family, God decided of all the ways that he could have done this, he could have done it in a lot of different ways, but he put, he put, the, he put Jesus into the, as a baby. Can you imagine Jesus as a lump on the floor? I don't know. I just, Okay. I don't know. I think, I think he might be more like Jack-Jack from Incredibles, but uh, that's, just, <clears throat> that's just me. That's just me. See? It's the, it's the last time I get to do this, so I can just let it all hang out. <laughs> By the way, as many years as I've been here, and this, is, this has only been around a few years, but I don't know about you, but I like see stuff in all these patterns. There's like... There's like constellations in here. I don't know if you've noticed. I can find I can find the Christian the Christian like the fish in here. Can you? Now you won't be paying any attention to any attention to me for the rest. So I can pretty much say whatever I want to now. Because, but there is something really cool. Even as I talk about families, you know what? One of the things that makes this so attractive is its texture. Is the fact that there there are knots. And there, is, there are lines, there is growth. That's what makes, to me, wood one of the most beautiful things ever. And it, just the, how it can be done, how it can be used, the fact that we, what, it, what imperfections in this wood makes it more attractive to all of us, in my, in my mind. But, okay, I've taken you off. That's what happens when you sit on the front row and you just have, like, it's either look at Pastor Brian or look at the wood, so... <laughs> I'm listening. I'm just, I'm listening. I'm just not looking at him. I'm listening. So. Okay. See, I should have stuck to my notes. That would have kept me out of trouble. So one of the key factors of a family with children is the primacy of parenting. In Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Genesis 18, 19, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Now, there is an important role in parenting, and it goes far beyond that little one, uh, that, that little lump that we have that we bring home and love and find so cute and can hold like this when they get big and then they drive away. We still parent them. We still love them. Our heart goes out. In fact, in some ways, parenting in, in the later years is more difficult than parenting in the younger years. You want to make the decisions for them like you could before, but you can't. You have to prepare them to make those decisions themselves. And then... Okay, I'm not going to say that. That would be trouble. <clears throat> yeah, filter, filter, filter. <laughs> but there is a there is a a, a valuable uh, piece of of advice that I was given as a parent, uh, as I was coming into parenting, and it was this, and and it is the probably other than the scripture itself, it is the most single important um, lesson that I learned from parenting, or about parenting. 
that we are not raising children. We are raising adults. And so that's why there are these things, decisions that we make that we have to realize, yes, let them be children, but keep, keep the vision in mind that eventually they will be off as adults making their own decisions. And so you want to train up that child to make those kind of decisions because they're going to go off and do it anyway, so you might as well make it, make it count, right? God places upon parents the call to protect and provide for our children, but also to equip and envision them for their turn as adults and their turn as parents, and their turn as productive participants in society. Indeed, God calls parents to have a long view of our family, to think in generations. That's something that I think in our, and particularly in the American culture, we're not as keen on. I find myself, when I'm in other parts of the globe, I find myself uh, encountering structures that have stood for centuries, or, or even in some cases millennia. And, and, I, and I, I think, what, what kind of mind was able to perceive something that could last so long, right? As much as we, we, we do, we, we can get closed in and forget that there is another generation that comes after us and a gener- you know, Lord willing, if, if Jesus tarries, then, the, then there will be another generation, another generation, and we should sow with that in mind, right? What, it, what, is, what, do we, what is the phrase? We should, we should um, uh, pray like he's going to come, or pray like he's going to come uh, tomorrow, but plan like he's not going to come back for several generations, right? So we need to have that long view of parenting, And family should, I'm sorry, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous, Proverbs 13, 22. Family is priority. Uh, There is communion in community. So, realizing that God uses the building block of family, we can see how it is important, how important it is to be part of family, to be connected. Whether it's the family we come from or the one we create, he wants his people connected into a community of families like this, the local church. When, when we participate in communion, which I'm kind of pointing to because that's where the, for those of you that are visitors here, there's a table normally here like for communion Sunday. So I'm not just like pointing to something. Well, it's not there, but it would be there if it were a communion Sunday. So... And it's, so when we participate in communion, when we come forward and take of the, and take of the juice and the, and the bread together, we are, we are embracing community, not just those in the same building like this one at the same time, but all who partake of his body and his blood in remembrance of his sacrifice for all of our sins. The church itself is the fourth pillar of God's design for time here on earth. The language of the New Testament conveys the connection that we are family. The term brethren, which is an older, older English term, is now translated brothers and sisters, which is also in that song, right? All my brothers, sisters, and me. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin was there. He's there. Like, he's right with me, right? Because he, he's there. He's always tuned in. Gener- same generation, right? Now, just like family, we should engage whether it's our attendance, our participation, our contribution, and our commitment, we should engage with one another, not just sitting together in pews on Sundays, but, or in chairs. These aren't really pews. These are very soft chairs, gentle chairs, right? Um, but we should not just sitting here and, and being next to each other. We should engage with one another. And that's where things like connect groups and the church picnic and, uh, and men's breakfast and all those things where we have opportunity to relate together and connect. Um, if, 
And let me, let, me, let me say, God puts families together for seasons, sometimes even generations, for the benefit of community. It's not just what we go to get from, it's what God calls us to go and give to. Amen? If you're not, now, if you're not part of the family of God, uh, the brothers and sisters who are united, not by blood ties of lineage, but by the blood of Christ through the power of redemption, I urge you to make that decision. There is no better family. And I find family members all over the world. I have had the privilege of being now in 35, 36 different countries on every continent. And it's just, it just is the most precious thing that I get to do is realize, wow, there are amazing people who love Jesus that I can feel instantly in fellowship with. It's like I've known them all my life and I just met them 10 minutes ago. And that's, what, that's the family of God, uh, wherever it's found. So if you, aren't, if you aren't, haven't made that decision, I invite you to, make, to not let another day go by without making that decision. Now, to be sure, there are some weird members of every family. And I know some of you have been listening to me going, yeah, amen, we've been listening to you for 20 minutes. It's like, <clears throat> yep, I admit it. Because, right, in family, sometimes every family is weird. Every family has, has some weird stuff going on, right? We, we, we like to put the fun in dysfunction. Yeah? Because we all have that. There is no normal. There is what God calls us to be, and then there's all of us trying to move in that direction. Some of us are trying to run the other way, and that's a problem, right? That's a problem. But, hey, don't let, don't let some weird member, weird member of this family spoil, you, spoil it for you. Uh, join it, because the eternal gain is so, so much worth it. Our family, and when I say our family, I mean the Godsey family, has been blessed to be part of this community. We have been blessed by so many of you, those in this church, and some who've journeyed with us here at VCC, but now are elsewhere, and among those are those that come back for the weekend, Yes. Um, some, some of you, and I would say all of you, but in particular, there's been a few of you that have been especially amazing examples for me and for my family. Uh, examples of Christ's love, of faith in the midst of trials, of perseverance in the face of persecution. Our church family has, has helped inspire, encourage, edify, challenge, and exemplify Christ to us. We have watched, as, as maybe you have loved your spouse in a special way that caught attention and said, I want to do that. Uh, we have watched as you have parented your children and said, wow, that's amazing. I, I want to do that. I want to learn more how to do that. While you have been faithful givers, and, and that encourages, encouraged us, where you have, when you have served selflessly, it's inspired us to serve more. When you have worshiped wonderfully, it's called us to worship more. And when you have prayed fervently, we have been blessed and challenged. You have helped us laugh. You have showed us how to love. You have been, in, many, in, in ways you may never know, conduits of the Holy Spirit, demonstrations of Jesus, and a representation of the Father's great love. None more so than Pastor Brian. We thank you, Pastor, and Mr. Where is he? There he is. <laughs> we thank you, Pastor Brian and Michelle, all the elders, all who God has graciously and generously blessed us with through this church. And while our season at, at VCC has come to a close, we pray that each of you called to this family for this season was, would be as blessed by this family of God as we have been. So, having said that, let me conclude. 
Family is God's idea. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's Ephesians 3. Satan's attack against the family cuts to the very foundation of God's fundamental building block of society. We find ourselves denying the hard science of biology and abandoning several millennia of truth about family. And in doing so, it only serves to weaken the family, to dismiss truth, and unfortunately um, unseat God's authority in creation. Those who claim Christ yet ignore the scriptures fail the first government, government of self. When self rules above family and above church, we hinder God's chosen conduits for his providence, for his provision, and for his protection. And the sequence of success, education, work, marriage before children, isn't from the imagination of some sociologists in our time. That sequence of success was ordained by the creator of the universe who only has our best in mind. He knows and provides for our needs by calling us into families and connecting us with others in a spiritual family. In contrast to the people of the world, let us be people of the word and cling tightly to what he has provided and continues to provision. May your family and this family be blessed in him. Amen?